Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. And in this episode, we're going to start our series on the four loves by C.S. Lewis. We did give a little disclaimer in uh, a previous episode, episode 115, that was posted on December 27th. And uh, so you maybe go back and listen to that. Um, We're going to try and give a little bit more to that disclaimer, and then we're going to jump into the first of the four loves, affections, in this episode. And before we do that, I want to mention an email that was sent. And this email, I got to find the right, where do I have this pulled up? Lydia Aloisi. Am I saying that? I think I said that correctly. So in a previous episode, we had talked about would it take longer to read through the Lord of the Rings or to watch through the Lord of the Rings? You can go back and I think that was one of our Christmas episodes. We're talking about reading. Mm -hmm. And, and so, uh, so Lydia sent us an email and like did the math. So, I recently listened to the intro to your an 111st birthday podcast episode. So it was one one one, and I thought I could read one of the Lord of the Ring. I thought I could read one of the Lord of the Rings novels in the same time it takes to watch one of the movies. So I did some research, and here's what I found. Let's say that I read at a speed of 600 words per minute. There are 137,115 words in the Return of the King book, according to Google. That amount of words divided by 600 words per minute means it would take me 228 and a half minutes to read that book. The Return of the King movie is 201 minutes long. And is is that extend... No, she gets into that. 200 minutes, 201 minutes, but the DVD extended is 254, and the Blu-ray extended is 263, also according to what I Googled. (gasps) The Blu-ray is longer? Yeah, I'm not sure about it. Oh, I got to get the Blu-ray then. I don't know why it is or is it, it anyway. Keep going. So, so there you have it. Theoretically, it would take me a little bit longer to read The Return of the King than it would to watch the original. A little bit longer to read. So it would take 228. And so if huh. she watched the theatrical version, she could read it in a, in a shorter amount than watching it. Huh. Which, first, this is just an applause. Like, great on you for doing this. This is fantastic. I would say the mental strain of reading for 228 straight minutes might be felt a little different than 258 minutes of watching. Wow. Um, And so I would, I mean, I'm sure someone can do it, but to sit down, start to finish, read, hold that pace for that long might not be a average person attempt, but I love that she did the math. Wait, I I have something to say about this. (laughs) Lydia. Get like some sort of device that can do a time lapse, charge the battery, <laughs> sit down and read it without. I, I want to see this. Okay. Here's the thing though. <laughs> when you have a deadline for an assignment, I magically get this ability. Oh, to read, <laughs> which is to read much, much faster okay, because okay. I have a very specific goal, which is <gasps> deadline. Uh, okay. And so I don't feel like if you're like, I'm going to read it in under would be an honest read if that was the primary reason you're reading it. That's okay. She'd still have to go You'd through the You'd have to work. catch someone in the wild <laughs> reading it on their own in one sitting, and you just have to casually observe how long it took them to read it. Wow. 
And really, you'd have to have a composite of multiple people you caught in the wild. Actually, if you used Bookly, and then average their times. if you used Bookly and tracked it, it would give you your real time reading speed at the end. But there, I know for me, if I was trying to beat right. the time, there's really no way I wouldn't like fudge Tim, the numbers. Done. Let's He's keep going. What's anyway, next? Lydia, that was an awesome email. Seriously. I was, was joyed good. to read that. Wow. And that's why I wanted to mention it on the podcast. So um, I will challenge someone. If someone wants to make a time lapse of them reading through Seriously. The Return of the King, yeah, do it. We'll post it on our Facebook. It's got to be, be like time lapse down to like a three minute total at the end or Which something. Which would be but, like <clears> a... Really massive fast. video file. But well, anyway. maybe longer. I don't know. Anyway, Whatever Lydia, works. Awesome. Very good. So, with that being said, we have some real business to tend to. Book and business. Book <laughs> and business. Let's talk about The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. And, uh, Tim, just before we jump in, where could they find this book? <laughs> it's at the Faith Bookstore. It's at the Faith Bookstore. And so, uh, we're going to do two things. Andy's going to talk about, I love, that's a good slurpy sound. I did that in the last episode too. I love doing that. Set the table for us there, yeah, Charlie. So Andy's going to talk about, is it chapter two? Chapter three. For, is it is, chapter three? Yep, the chapter on affection. Is it, it's chapter three. Is It is chapter mm-hmm. three. It's chapter three. So we're going to try and set the table because there's chapter one is introduction, 12 pages. And then chapter two is likings and loves for the subhuman. Um, and that's about 20 something pages, 28 pages before you get to affection. So there's a lot of mater- 40 pages of material in the four loves before you get to talking about one of the four loves. So what is Lewis doing? We talked about this in our disclaimer, and I think this is probably the most important thing as you a- approach the book is trying. And we talk about this all the time, but like, what is Lewis trying to accomplish? What is he doing? And I really think he is trying to define love philosophically. We, we mentioned our disclaimer, he doesn't do a lot of exegesis work, but he's, he's thinking through the concept of love and trying to, I think, parse out what this could mean, right? So one way to think about it is I want you to imagine a conversation where someone is saying that they love a food. So we'll use... A while back, we talked about chili quite a bit, right? Ooh. Throwing the egg in the chili. Let's go back to we chili. We made chili last night. You oh, did? it was good. Well, I didn't. Robin Chili's made it. just it a good... It was really good, though. It Tim, is. are you a fan of chili? Yeah. I should have put an egg in the chili. <laughs> I should really have tried... No, no, you don't want to try that. You don't, you don't want to put, put eggs in chili. You don't want to put the egg in chili. It might be good, but that's a high-risk, high-reward situation. Uh, high, probably it's a high-risk, high low-reward. Low I know. Yeah. It's yeah. like, that's... Mm. Moving on. Set the I mean, table. if it's anything like egg drop soup, it's not going to be good. So affections right. is kind of like chili. So let's move on. Like Mr. Timekeeper today. He's overburdened by this yoke. We like, must move on. Oh, anyway, horrendous. Um. So what is Lewis doing? Imagine a conversation where I said, "I love chili," and then someone in the background. Do you like, want to marry the chili? Yeah. Do you really love chili, <laughs> or do you just like chili? Yeah. If you love it, why don't you marry it? So. What does that conversation capture? That there is one word, love, that has multiple meanings to it. And Lewis actually brings this up in one of the introduction chapters. I don't know if it's one or two. I think it's in the first one. Like, what do we, what's the difference between loving, air quotes, loving something and liking it? Page 13. Yeah. So the very first part of li- likings and loves. There you go. And so in that context, he's trying to define, well, when I say love, what could I mean? 
And obviously a book called The Four Loves, he's going to give you four different types of love. Affection is one. Friendship is one. Eros is one. Charity is one. So there's four, right? But he actually mentions a whole bunch of different types of loves and desires in those first two chapters. That's what we want to set the table with. I think it gives us a nice context for what he's going to describe in his chapters. So is it legitimate to say that you love chili? What did you guys conclude? It is. It depends how I intended to use that word. So the semantic range of love is broader than just something that you... What? Is bigger than just... It includes likes as well as things that you are like wholly devoted to. So where Lewis starts, the very first phrase of the introduction is he says, God is love, says St. John. That's Mm. a very simple statement, right? So if you're trying to define love, well, God is love. Done. Book's written. So is Chili. Yeah. Chili is love. No. Get out of (laughs) it. Stop. That's that's horrendous. Anyway. Oh, that was good. So you can, as he starts walking through this, it's like, if God is love, is it really that simple? And again, he's defining, no, it's not that simple. And what he parses out in the first chapter is he sees a difference in types of love. Like there's a love where you very much akin to the character of God, where you give out of love, gift love. But then he's like, well, does that mean when someone needs something that that's not love? And the picture he gives there is of a child running to his mom when he's scared or needs something. And that child is expressing a love, but it's not giving something to the mom. It's seeking to receive. It's a need love. And so he starts with this God is love. Is it really that simple? He's like, no, let's think about these two things. There's gift love and then there's need love. And he walks through the whole introduction where he's like, both of these could be legitimate. He's like, we shouldn't morally look down on a need love because guess what? We cannot approach God with without need love. Right. Because we desperately need him mm-hmm. to give us. Mm-hmm. And so I think he frames that really well. And then he gets into chapter two and he's like, okay, so now with this idea of gift love and a need love, he starts talking about just pleasures for things, desires. Like when you love something, you probably have a desire for it. So if I say I love chili, I probably want it. And he, at the end of chapter one, going into chapter two, he says this phrase. And he, he kind of repeats this multiple times throughout the whole book. And this is the phrase. It's on page 11 of the copy I, that we have. The highest does not stand without the lowest. Hmm. And that to him, I think, is a guiding principle as he tries to understand what love is, is you can't look at like a base desire or pleasure, like, a, like I want chili. Uh, the example he uses in chapter two is of wanting a, a glass of water. He's like, that in its essence is a type of love. It's a like. And, but that's different than other likes. So like when you drink the glass of water, you're done. Like you're not, you're, you're no longer thirsty. You don't yeah. have the desire anymore. Yep. He calls that a need pleasure, a need desire. But then there's this like appreciative desire where like you don't have a need for like the smell of coffee. But when you have it, you're like, oh, that's so good. So good. And it doesn't really expel over time, right? 
I'm like, li- literally th- engaging in appreciative coffee love right now. Yeah. So there's, there's no like desire that crops up <clears throat> in you like a thirst for water, like a physical yearning for a smell of something or like to, to broaden it out to its logical end would be beauty. There's not like a, a thirst of beauty, like, oh, you drink the beauty and now the beauty thirst goes away like a glass of water. So underneath of his gift love and his need love, he's got, well, these gift loves and these need loves have desires associated with them. Some of them are like getting a drink of water, using the restroom as, as, as on page 17, kind of humorously. And then he talks about like walking by a bean field and that's like an appreciation desire. And then he gets to this third category, which is an appreciation love that kind of exalts itself where we recognize its objective value, where we start to worship it and uses that terminology. And so underneath of this gift love, where I really want to give people things and exp- as an expression of love, or I need things like I'm, I'm going to someone out of love to receive underneath the gift love and the need love are these three desires which it might be a desire for a thing I need, which there are things I definitely need, want from God. Like I, I need him to give me things, <laughs> right? And then there's things that I really appreciate about God that I don't necessarily need, but like his character, I appreciate it. And that's the perfect category because when I realize those things about him that I appreciate, that actually has its own category where I am supposed to worship it. So, as he gets into his discussion about affections for things, friendships, like what should be an affection for a specific person, which isn't an erotic relationship, it's a friendship to draw a line of category, or like an agape charity love, all of those four loves have underneath of them these two larger subcategories of a gift love or a need love And underneath the gift and need love are these desires, this understanding of how pleasures operate. And he, he wants you to know that before you start talking about your affections or your friendships or your romantic involvements or your charity like that, you, you you know, how, and he tries to parse them out and eventually says it's too complicated to parse them out, but those undercurrents are happening in all of the four loves. There are things that you need, there are things you appreciate, and there are things that at times you worship, whether you should worship them or not, is a discussion to have. But those undercurrents of desire are affecting the way that you give people things out of love and the way you seek to get things from people you love. And then he illustrates it with two things, right? Uh, Perhaps. What are you referring to? Well, I thought the nature and patriotism thing. Oh, yeah. And then in chapter two, he kind of goes down that road of thinking with like, a love of nature. Like, what is that? Do you need nature? Do you appreciate nature? Do you worship nature? Or like a love of one's country. Do you need your country? Do you appreciate your country? Do you worship America? Or in his case, England. Um, so he kind of walks through that. Part. He does that really well in chapter one and two. He gives examples of what he's meaning. So with that backdrop, I'd encourage you maybe if you have a copy, you're listening to this, just pause and maybe go and kind of review that and walk through where he talks about some of those things. I can summarize it this way. If you're going to talk about the pinnacle of love, 
which is the charity love where God agape sacrificially loves us. And we try to sacrificially like God, love him and other people, which would be the Shema. If you want that pinnacle of love and you want to experience that, that highest form of love does not stand without your desires and pleasures down at the bottom. Like the need love. Yeah. Well, just the highest, as he says, page 11, the highest does not stand without the lowest. Right. And then he gives an illustration. A plant must have roots below as well as sunlight above, uh, and the roots must be grubby. I knew you were going to read that. So if you get down into the dirt and you're like, so do you love God? And you're like, well, do I love him just because of what he gives me? Need love. Do I love him just because of who he is? Appreciative love. Or do I actually worship him the way I'm supposed to worship him? And you start trying to parse all that out and you're like, that gets really messy right? Well, guess what? (laughs) That high agape love is an extension of those grubby little wants and desires as who you are as a human. Like you can't have the highest forms of love without an understanding of your pleasures and desires, et cetera. And so he, and then I just love the way he talks about it. Much of the grubbiness, speaking of the dirty roots is clean dirt. Like there's not inherently a problem in you having desires. Unless, if only, you will leave it in the garden and not keep on sprinkling it over the library table. So like the illustration is like if you take your dirty little grubby once and you bring it into the library and you start spilling dirt over the books, it's like you have to keep your desires and your your wants, your appreciative loves and your need pleasures. You need you probably want to keep them in the proper place. I think this could be mm-hmm. an argument for ordering of desires. Um but you have to understand that you have them. And that's really what he's done in the first two chapters. And I think it's worth noting to tag onto that at the very beginning of chapter one, he said, Hey, I'm just gonna, I, when I went to write this book, I thought it would be easy panegyrics. I think he says on praising gift love and disparaging need love. So yeah. he, he, he started off thinking this is going to be easy. I'm just gonna talk about basically agape love. And he, once he got into it, he realized this connection that you're talking about. Well, and it's okay. all sort of, it's a ball of yarn where it's well, all related. Think about like, you know, there's kind of the, the idea of like, well, you only call someone when you want something, you know, like maybe mm-hmm. it's a parent or a friend and it's like, well, what do you want? <clears throat> what do you mean? What do I want? Well, the only reason you're calling it, the only, the only time you call is when you need something from me. And we kind of have that tone of like, well, you know, real love is I'm going to give selfless, selfless, yeah. Get, and then, but then what, well, what do you do about that need love? And he's like, well, that grubby, dirty need love that you might disparage as love is the only way you can approach God because you're not bringing him anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if we want to talk for loves, we're going to start at affections, which is pretty general. And then you get to friendship, which is kind of applied affection. And then you get to eros, uh, eros, romantic love, which is more definitive than just a general friendship. Then you get to this charity agape love idea. You're kind of progressing, I think, in in virtue and in specificity. You you can't have that agape without a need, like these need pleasures, desires circulating at the bottom. Like the, the highest cannot stand without the lowest. And he he gets into this in that introduction because the production of the true love, the gift love 
is a result of sanctification. And he actually uses the term sanctification. So if you really want to be a gift love person, you want to take on the character of Christ, which he mentions specifically, you don't do that. You, you then approach God in need love. Like, I can't do this. Can you help me? And then he does. He gift loves you and he changes you. He sanctifies you. So that, that's kind of the principle why he talks about gift love and need love, while he talks about these different types of pleasures, is he's trying to illustrate and build the foundation that the highest forms of love cannot stand without the lowest, primarily meaning our relationship with love, with God, and that's not as if they're equal, like love is God, but our interaction with the loves, understanding our loves and our relationship with God is founded on our need initially. You can't avoid that. So table set, Boom. maybe a little longer than we want to do, but the only thing I would add before we jump into affection is listener. I don't think it's a ladder and then maybe you would disagree. I don't think for me to have charity, I have to climb the rung of affection, then climb the rung of friendship and then climb the rung of no, Eros. No, no. So I think it's more like they're underneath agape, but agape is not unrelated to them. In fact, in the affections chapter, he has that one part where he says, you know, it almost sounds like we're just talking about agape, are we? And he's, there's a distinction yeah. here, but they're they're similar. Yeah, I think they're they're for yeah. in Lewis's mind, as you now understand or you attempt <laughs> attempt to understand attempt to understand gift, love, need, love, pleasures, desires, those things. Now, with that undercurrent, here are four categories of love, and we start with affection. So yeah, so for so what we want to do in this <clears throat> the rest of this episode is just talk about the chapter on affection. And affection is a Greek word, storge, and uh, it, it he what he does is you he starts off by using a Greek definition of what the word means, and so I'm just going to read a small section here out of it so you can get an idea of where he says he says the Greeks called this love which he's going to call affection, storge. I shall I shall call it here affection. My Greek lexicon defines storge as affection, especially of parents to offspring, but also of offspring to parents. And so if you think about it this way, as a parent, unless, I mean, we're, we're un, we're unsanctified people. And so at times you probably don't view your kids this way, but by default, if you have kids, you love them. There's an affection you have for them based on the fact that they're your children. And then your children by default generally are going to have affection for their parents. And that kind of a, that kind of a love is unique in some ways. He says, however, though, that he goes on to say, he said, the image we must start with is that of a mother nursing a baby, a cat with a basket full of kittens, all squeaking and nuzzling in a heap together, purring, licking, baby talk, milk, warmth, and the smell of young life. He says, the importance of this image is that it presents us at the very outset with a certain paradox. And now he brings back up the need love thing. He says, the need and the need love of the young is obvious. So is the gift love of the mother. She gives birth. She gives milk. She gives protection. On the other hand, she must give birth or die. She must give milk or suffer. That way, her affection too is also need love. That is the paradox. It is need love, but what it needs is to give. 
It is a gift love, but what it needs is to be needed. And so he's going to bring that back at this point. He does say this, though, is that you need to extend this idea of affection beyond just parents and children and children and parents. He says the affection can go around. And so what I really like is that he he takes this, he says there are lots of objects that can be affectionate, you can have affection for. And a lot of times, think about this listener. So why do you love the things that you love? So I'll talk about coffee. I love a coffee. I love coffee because it tastes good. And if you put a bad cup of coffee in front of me, I'm not going to have affection or love in that sense for that cup of coffee. But he says real true affection isn't based on the characteristics of the object primarily. So he says it like this. He says that affection is based mostly on familiarity. So he's a long section here where you have affections for things that you're familiar with. So this is where I think we might bleed a little bit into some biblical thoughts here. Think about your family. All right. So you probably have parents or grandparents, whoever you're in your family with, and you probably have some siblings. Even if you're an only child, you probably have some people you grew up around. And so do you, do you have affection for those people? Well, probably if you had siblings, there are times when you didn't have affection for your siblings. But on the whole, even though they're your siblings and they've done stupid things and you've done stupid things, you guys have had fights and whatnot, there's this overtime familiarity that you have that breeds, a, I think you said the term earlier, you said like a nostalgia. Yeah. But I think nostalgia can sound bad, but I think the idea is that it's an, a long-term familiarity that brings a... Uh, I mean, I'm trying to not use the word affection. Is there another word you put there? It's like a, a, it is a love. It's a love. love. Yeah, it's a love. But what kind of love? Well, it's not like, it's not these other loves. Yeah, but it, but it's just the fact that by nature, so it's kind of, I would say like this, I grew up and I had these neighborhood friends. We, we all lived next door to each other. And today I don't talk to any of them and that's, I'm not, not opposed to any of them. But when I got old enough to pick my own friends that were beyond my neighborhood, I didn't go back to those neighborhood friends. So that's actually, it's a great illustration. So like I'm from a small town and when you go back mm. to the small town, there's people that you've known your whole life. Yeah. You're familiar, like, you yeah. know, and you walk into that coffee shop and you see them. It's like, I haven't talked to this person in like 10 years. And it's like, Oh, Hey, yeah. how's it going? That, that's the affection he's talking yeah. about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's, that kind of helps you when you say like, I love this to think, oh, that's like an affection. Now I do want to. Or in that oh, context ahead. to be like, oh, I love these people, but I don't love them the same way, same way I love my friends, my actual friends. Yeah. Yep. I don't love them the same way that I would a romantic relationship. Mm-hmm. And it's not like a, a, I'm not sacrificing, giving like the highest virtue of love for them. It's like, what is it? Well, it's just like familiar feelings type of a thing. And yet at the same time, we would never go so far as to say it's not love. No. And I think that's maybe part of Lewis's point here is that all these are aspects or features of this big idea of love. Now, the other thing he says about this familiarity that I think I could bleed into my coffee experiences, I grew up not liking coffee. So I stayed away from it, drank pop, drank decaf. And so really... The only reason I wanted to learn to like coffee is because the sugar from the pop is making me fat. So I switched to diet and then the chemicals in the diet was giving me brain fog. I'm like, okay, fine. I'll try this coffee thing out. But it took me a couple of years of getting familiar with coffee to where I liked it. So he talks about affectionist familiarity. Now I will say, listener, this chapter 
I think is a bit of a, a dr- it's it's a bit of a slog. He he. What do you what do you want to say, Tim? I liked it. <laughs> okay, I'm glad you liked it. And I will say this: I walked into this book with wrong wrong expectations, listener. <laughs> I thought one thing, and I tried to blast it all at once. So there's really good stuff here. But if you're if you're looking for a clear outline with like a maybe a biblical start and some definitional ideas and, and some illustrations. That's not how this chapter goes. Tim really helped me. We were talking about this way back when we were starting the reading and I was like lamenting how challenging this was. And he said, yeah, I don't think it's the kind of chapter that you outline. I think it's more of a conversation. So I fired this up to listen to it and it made, it made, it made a lot more sense. So I think the idea of can familiarity it, can is a big deal. Can I just make a brief? So no, no, I was going to oh, say, no. why don't I open it up to you guys? Because that's about where, I mean, I've got ideas to talk about, but what do you guys want to bring up I'll just, and talk about? I'll just about? say, like, while it is very conversational, when you read a book, it's not like, you're not having, you, you kind of are, but you kind of, you, you literally are not having a conversation. So you can't be like, whoa, 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 what do you mean there? Yeah, exactly. But you get to do that mental activity. Like, <clears> so at the end of a page or a paragraph, if you're just like drifting through and you're like, I don't yes. have any idea what that yep. means. If that was in a conversation, like a liter, if you mm-hmm. were actually sitting down with someone and you realize, man, the last three or four things they said, I didn't catch any of that. What would you have to do in an actual conversation? Whoa, whoa, whoa. can you repeat that? Wait, wait, you just said this. What do you mean when you say that? You'd have to, you'd have to have that person repeat it. And you have the benefit of being able to go back and read things again. And like, you will have to do that in it's in these chapters. Mm-hmm. If uh, I, oh, go ahead. No, you can. No, no, I, I was just going to move on, but go oh. ahead. So I just want to read this because I think it's really funny and punchy. Ooh. It is indeed the least discriminating of loves. Page 42. Okay. Yeah, that's where. <laughs> affection, affection, the affection love is indeed the most the least, the least discriminating of loves because of the familial component to affection. And then he continues and he states, there are women for whom we can predict few (laughs) wooers and men who are likely to have few friends. Well, the woman will have few wooers because, well, they're just not the ones that stand out of the crowd. I think the word he uses is attractiveness, but he doesn't mm-hmm. mean it just in looks. Right. I think it's like the overall person. Yeah, the charm yeah. and the beauty. Yeah. Uh, and then the men who have few friends, whether they're poor or they're just boring, know, boring, uninteresting. Whatever. Right. And then he continues and he says, they have nothing to offer. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so they have few friends. But guess what? Even these people, they have parents. And guess what those parents have for those people? Love. Love. Yeah. Real love. Real love. Yeah. And, and that's, yep. that's a component of love that, that is often lost um, or, or we forget about it. You know, that person that is annoying, guess what? They have a parent and that parent does love them. So I thought that was something to highlight. And I think at this point in the chapter, you could almost, almost break down the rest of the chapter as Lewis essentially saying, here mm-hmm. is one of the good things about affection. And I think that you just hit it. That's what I was going to mm-hmm. say. The benefit of affection is that it, it doesn't really, it's not based on the object that you have affection mm-hmm. for primarily. Yeah. He even says it's, you, he says there's a, a very notable line where he says, you kind of can look back and see the moment you, f- you fell in love with someone or you see the moment you blah, blah, blah. But he says, once you notice affection, it's, it's already been happening. Yeah. It like happens over time. So I think he, he kind of breaks the chapter down here, advantages of affection and here are the good points of it. 
And then he spends a lot of time talking about the dangers yeah. or weaknesses to it, so mm-hmm. it, which I was not expecting. I think that's part of what threw me for a loop. So just to, it is very hard to categorize, like uh, outline, but he, he calls them, if you want a page number, page 62, he does call some of the things he's talking about perversions of affection. Mm-hmm. So like we would say affection is a, a love that you should have, like you should mm-hmm. have affections for things. But then he starts talking about how you can like jealously yearn or crave for people to have affection for you. And he's like, that's wrong. It's a perversion. And you can actually see the bottom of 62. If you have the same copy that I'm looking at, he talks about perversions that are a result of needs, like need loves. Mm -hmm. And he talks about perversions of affection that are gift love. Mm -hmm. And then from 62 on, he's going to talk more about the gift side of it. Mm -hmm. That's where Tim, I know you liked the, the Mrs. Fidget illustration, right? Yeah, that's like love gone awry. Yeah. He uses two illustrations, Mrs. Fidget and Dr. Quartz. And I think we should b- visit both of those. And then his comments on animals at the end was like precious. Why don't you go and walk us through walk us through Fidget and and uh Well the Quartz. Jealousy component that he just talked about with Miss Fidget, it begins back on page fifty nine. Jealousy is actually a biblical concept, uh, a component of love. It's in the Song of Songs, it's in God's love and the love that he expects from others. He states at the top of 59, but we have not yet touched on jealousy. I suppose no one now believes that jealousy is especially connected with erotic love. So he makes this statement that jealousy is not connected with erotic love. Um, let's see here. Um, okay, yeah. So... The jealousy of affection is closely connected with its reliance on what reliance on what is old and familiar. So this this component of jealousy, I can't remember. I, I don't have any more notes on. It. I just kind of highlighted that part, and I don't want to read a whole pile of the book. But I will just say that jealousy is connected to erotic love. It's actually in Song Eight. I think you may maybe you should say can be because can be. he's going to talk about jealousy between. F- Friends or siblings. That's right. That's and I don't he think it, so. He it. he would say like the familiarity part is you're so familiar with one another, everything's the same. And then when like one sibling or one friend, he says goes on to find a new interest like botany or uh, something else where you don't have any interest in it or have experience, then what happens is there's a break of familiarity, mm-hmm. and that's sort of a component in jealousy, is what he's saying. Yes. So, and I I can see where that is partly related to Eros, but I don't think it would have to be. Right. But I think we've, I I don't know, have you ever had an experience where you had a friend who you're really close to and then they went off and had some other experience, they came back and there was like a distance in your relationship? Mm -hmm. Right. That gets into the friendship chapter. I think, I think he's kind of talking like when we use like, oh, they're jealous. Like we very commonly see that as a romantic thing, but like it it crops up in all these other types of love too. Yeah. And has nothing to do with Eros. I think that's maybe... What page is that on? That was top of 59. We have not yet touched on jealousy. I suppose no one now believes that jealousy is especially connected with erotic love. Mm -hmm. So it is connected to erotic love, but it's not especially connected to it. It is actually connected to friendship, love, and even affection. And he does apply it even to family and how somebody um, trusts in Christ as their savior. And then there's... a jealousy because that person is now like an outsider or yeah and that's the breaking of the familiarity there's um i have friends who they're catholic actually this be very i don't know if it'd be similar to your experience but charlie but my other 
friends I know, they got. I do s- have Catholic friends. Well, no, but he he said uh, their their family was like very very committed Catholics. They had like twelve siblings. Devout um, practice. Devout. That would be it. Yeah. And so when they got saved, it was such a difference in them that it felt like it felt like they got shunned from their family and it was just because they weren't invited to all the things that didn't go around. And so that there was a, see the thing though, is that he's, he's pointing that out as a problem with affection, but I would say, I don't think that family had less affection. It's just now there's less familiarity because you're not involved in all the same things. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was an interesting observation. The presumption thing, um, he brought up in on page 55, I thought was worth talking about. So he, he brings up that when you interact with outsiders or strangers, there's, I don't know, I'll say it like this, there's a level of formality. So if, if I meet someone on the street, I'm going to treat them a certain way. Now we're not a very formal society anymore, but there are societies, even languages where when you talk with a stranger, you use like formal, uh, wording. Mm-hmm. And then when you talk with your family, you use like oh, informal, yeah. you know, and that's like at a language level. But even if I'm, if I meet someone off the street, I'm going to talk to him one way. But then when I'm with my really close friends or my family, he, what does he say? You can let it all, you can let your hair down or something. Well, we don't like there. And, and I don't need to be formal in my own. Definitely home. a different culture in like England. Yes. Like 50 years ago. Yeah. But like there's etiquette. Yes. Like when you go to a dinner party. Yeah. If you don't act according to these formal rules, you are wrong to do so. And so like there's these rules here, but then when you're just like, you know, at the pub, there's no formal rules. Yeah. And so he's kind of getting at that play there of like when you are not at the dinner party, but you're mm-hmm. interacting with your buddy with the formal rules. It's like, why are you doing that? That's weird, yeah. Yeah, and it's so The problem though, he says is where it can go wrong. And I think this was for me helpful. And I think believer, this could be helpful for you. He says, there's one thought that when you're with people, you don't know, you treat them in a certain level of respect because you don't know them. You're kind of not on your best behavior, but you're on different behavior. But then when you go home to your own family, you let your hair down. You're a little bit more yourself. He says, however, I've seen, he calls them the rudester. He says, this guy goes home and he treats everyone in his home super rude. And if someone were to say, why are you doing that to the people you love? His response would be, oh, we know each other. We don't have to put on pretension here at home. But Lewis says that's actually like a cloak for, it's almost like he's observing that that's kind of a wrong understanding of affection. And it's like a selfishness. A perversion. Yeah, it's a perversion. You're using your familiarity of these people, your affection for them as a guise for being rude. Yes. And so I think what was helpful for me is we live in a culture today that's super casual, okay? Which is okay. I'm, ha- I'm happy about that. I don't want to go back to a formal English culture. But in the home, if I'm so relaxed that I'm not speaking clearly and I'm just speaking generically or I'm being rude or I'm being short and I'm like, oh, they know I love them, then I'm presuming. It's like presumption. I'm presuming that I can treat them this way and I'm sort of trading on this relationship that we have. And I thought that the perversion of that was helpful because like, I'll just speak to the fathers and husbands. Like you can come home after a long day and, uh, are you rude to your family? And, and, and if someone called you on it, we'd be like, oh no, we know each other. We just jaw around like that. But really, are you, are you doing that selfishly? Cause you just want to relax or are you thinking about the other person? And, and I think you could pervert this kind of affection in a way that us like a biblical Christian could say, oh, that actually is, I should be kinder. I should be. I even think of like miscommunication. Sometimes I don't take care in my 
this has even happened to us. Like I don't, I speak unfiltered to you guys and you guys speak unfiltered. And then we've done that before. We're like, oh, we're buddies, we're friends. But sometimes that unfiltered talking, which is born out of our affection for one another and our familiarity has caused miscommunication to which has caused tension. And we've had to go back and ask forgiveness and clarify. So I do think that part of the chapter was really helpful. And I think that could be something that Christians could take away from this as a benefit. Yeah. Um, so Mrs. Fidget, I think we need to talk about Mrs. Fidget. So talk page, about Mrs. Fidget. Do it, Tim. Go for it. And Dr. Quartz. So we've got two like anecdotal characters that he creates mm -hmm. and they're, they're making points. And so let's, which one comes chronologically first? Mrs. Fidget's first. Fidget's first. So, so what Ms. is Fidget? Mrs. Fidget uh, loves her children and she constantly invests her life in her children. She takes care of the clothes. She's making the meals. She's taking care of the house and works and works and works and works. And then she dies. And uh, so on page 63, he talks about the death of Mrs. Fidget and how when she passes away, uh, it is really astonishing how her family have brightened up. That's what he states. Like all of a sudden Mrs. Fidget dies and the family is like not mournful as much as they're almost happier, which is kind of like weird. After all, this woman has poured her life into her children. And he uses Mrs. Fidget as an illustration of the perversion of affection. Mrs. Fidget found her worth in her children and sacrificing for her children. So she works and works and works and the parents or the husband or the kids are like, why don't you just take the laundry to the laundromat? Why do you have to do all the work? But she uh, achieved her identity through this form of gift love, which wasn't really gift love. It was something that she needed. She needed to love her children in this way. And thus uh, she uh, acquired her identity in serving her children in this way is a perversion of love of this uh, affection. So he uses uh, these, these uh, illustrations. Everyone in the neighborhood knew it. She lives for her family. And they said, what a wife and a mother. And this is something that we as Christians can fall into as well, where we achieve an identity of sacrifice and service. But really what we're after is not really serving that person. What we're after is um, uh, the identity we want to be needed. And we want to be needed. Yeah. That's it. Yep. We want to be needed. Uh, what I really loved is at the end of the chapter, how he applied it to animals. Yes. <laughs> the pet thing was awesome. So on page 67, this terrible need to be needed often finds its outlet in pampering an animal. To learn that someone is fond of animals tells us very little until we know in what way. For there are two ways. On the one hand, the higher and domesticated animal is, so to speak, a bridge between us and the rest of nature. We all at times feel somewhat painfully our human isolation from the subhuman world. Um, let's see here. I'm going to skip a whole bunch here. If you need to be needed and if your family, very properly, decline to need you, yep. <laughs> a pet is the ob obvious substitute. You can keep it all its life in need of you. You can keep it permanently infantile, reduce it to permanent invalidism, cut it off from all genuine animal well-being, and compensate for this by creating needs for countless little indulgences, which only you can grant. So um, I thought that was a, a, 
something maybe for even our culture to contemplate the need for animals and how many animals, how animal conscious our culture is. Uh, so anyway, it's interesting too, because, uh, as people, well, yeah, I'll just say that I do think sometimes people take their animals as seriously as people. Yeah. And I, I, I think animals are good. I think the Bible says that a, a godly, righteous man treats an animal with respect and kindly. Yeah. But when an animal gets the energy and love, you might say that, a, that ought to be given to a human. I do think like yeah. the perversion thing has come up. Well, that, I think that's what he's, he's like, so <clears throat> when Mrs. Fidget, Mrs. Fidget needed a dog. Can't, can't put, <laughs> well, she's, she's trying to get yeah. this need love satisfied in her gifting to her family and her mm-hmm. family rejects it. What does she do? She gets another family, which is an animal that she completely controls. Mm-hmm. And so like, oh man, that, that dog needs me. And then they live because they have to have, yeah. they have to serve that so animal it, it, or Not person. that it always is, but it could mm-hmm. be right. a perversion of an affection. Like right. you should not, look, to use the word, not love an animal that way. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't let it become a vice. So, so let's talk about Dr. Quartz. So uh, bottom of 66 uh, I am old enough to remember the sad case of Dr. Quartz. No university boasted a more effective or devoted teacher. He spent the whole of himself on his pupils. So he uses the illustration of Dr. Quartz in a similar way. Dr. Quartz needs the students and he is, has an affection for the students. Uh, he, and he devotes himself to the students. So this one of course resonates a little bit more with myself because I'm a professor. Yeah. But it helps to just keep in mind what is the goal. And the goal, just like with Mrs. Fidget, is not to keep somebody needing you. The goal is to propel them out into the world so that your children become independent individuals living for the glory of God. Similarly, your students become independent thinkers for the glory of God. And Dr. Quartz uh, would have people over... Um, and then after a while, he would just cut them off. Uh, he states, um, let's see here. Sooner or later, it might be within a few months or even a few weeks, came the fatal evening when they knocked on his door and were told that the doctor was engaged. After that, he would, be, he would always be engaged. They were banished from him forever. This was because, at their last meeting, they had rebelled. They had asserted their independence, differed from the master, and supported their own view, perhaps not without success. And this is where being a professor and trying to teach people to think, and a lot of times as pupils, guess what? They don't think very well. (laughs) Their ideas aren't very good. Um, But that is part of the process of giving them that freedom to think about the idea and to even be wrong uh, in areas where... It's okay to be wrong. Um, And so within even a lot of my classes, I like teaching and assigning assignments where I don't really care what view the the student takes on a specific issue. It's good for them to have to sort through the data and to come down on a conclusion. And it's not going to like, you know, (laughs) determine whether or not they're going to be able to graduate from our institution. In other words, not dealing with like inerrancy or some of the core doctrines of the faith. But instead, you know, how should you understand the book of Ecclesiastes? You could take one view or another and still graduate from our institution. You know, my view's right, but if you come down on the other side, then um, hopefully you're a better thinker as a result. Yeah. 
So uh, I thought the challenge there with Dr. Quartz and, and the rightly ordering of loves was just a helpful anecdote of properly ordering affections. Well, and then the very next paragraph is where we get to the illustration of pets. Right. And I think in a sense, he's like, what is the professor doing with the, with the students? Pets. They're his pets. Which is, mm-hmm. And he loves his pets until they bite. And then he's like, I'm going to get some new ones. Like he, It's like a need to be wanted. And he, like a professor fulfilling that through a pupil and education is no longer the enterprise. It's fulfillment of desire. And then the, the old lady does that with their cats in a sense. I have one more thing I'd like to highlight. Okay. On this chapter. Go for hey, it. Oh no, there's a point. I was just going to tag off of that idea. Oh, you can tag on it. Go. Well, I was just going to say that. Tag, you're it. It's interesting. <laughs> you've, you've probably had relationships with people where they love you or you thought they did. And then something like this happened and there was a break in that love. And I think this is going to highlight where it's going to end in the book. So charity for, for Lewis, the final love is agape love, which is what we often talk about an unconditioned love. And so whenever you've had a relationship with someone that's going well, and then you did something and then they, they, they're like, I'm, I'm, I'm out. What you've discovered is that the quality of love was based on this kind of affection where there's like familiarity. So like as long as the pupil takes the position of the teacher, there's familiarity. As long as the pet does what the owner wants, there's familiarity. But when that breaks and then you jettison them, it's demonstrating why affection is good, but it needs agape. Well, so, and this is, so agape love, no condition. Exactly. What is the condition of affections? Familiarity. Familiarity. And he says that, I can't remember what page, but change is the enemy. Like the moment I make a change, that affects the affections. But that would not affect charity because Mm -hmm. charity is conditionless. Mm -hmm. That's a really good way of talking about that. That was really helpful, Andy. Mm -hmm. That was good. Well, I think we've all had probably relationships where you felt like there's relational strings. Like there's strings attached. And I, I don't think affection's bad. I just, mm. I think he's, his perversions, as you pointed out, I think they kind of, they touch on this. So puppets, puppets, puppets have strings. Okay. You, you don't want to go any further? No, Tim? I think it's good. Okay. Do you have anything else you want to add from this chapter? No, I think we're ready. For ready for the Greek. Up. Okay. So yeah. here, here's what we're going to do next is Lewis is a philologist. Okay. That means he's a linguist. And so he's looking at this, like what Charlie said, it's a big dictionary definition. Okay. And so he's looking at all these Greek terms that relate to our English term today, love. So what I did is I looked through my Greek new Testament to find all of the times that these Greek words occur. I'll give you some details here. And then I want to just talk about the one for today. Uh, there are four Greek words that he's going to cover phileo, which is friendship, love, Agape, which is that unconditional love, which is the fourth or the final chapter, charity. Uh, Eros, which is like an erotic love. And then today's word is storge, which is the affection love. When I went to look up agape, the charity love or the unconditional love, and phileo, the friendship love, they're all through agape way more in the New Testament, but there's a number of phileo terms. But when I looked up Eros, it's nowhere in the Bible. In fact, even in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is where I thought we would have it, we don't have it. Storge, our word for today for affection, is also one that never occurs in the Greek New Testament. However, uh, like variations on the word do. 
So if I'm going to use an illustration to explain the first variation that we see, and then I'll talk about some Bible verses. Um, if you think through atheism, okay, an atheist is someone who does not believe in God. The Greek word for God is theos. And in Greek, if you want to make something the opposite or negative, you just add a letter A to the beginning. So atheos or atheist means no God. What's interesting is that in the Greek New Testament, you don't have storge, but you have a storge. And you find it in two places. The first place is Romans 1. And I'm sorry, I should have pulled this up here. Romans 1, 31. And if you're familiar with Romans chapter 1, Paul is condemning all of the world that they knew that there was a God, they knew that he was a creator, and they, they, they suppress that knowledge in their sin because they wanted to continue sinning. And so God gives them over to wrong thinking. And in this, uh, there's like this stair-stepping down and down and down. They continue to, to, to suppress this knowledge, and God continues to give them over to their sins. And one of the things that he did is he gave them up to a debased mind that they would be filled with all manner or to do, to do what ought not be done. And so in Romans chapter one, verse 29, I'm going to begin reading. And this is the result of not recognizing God and his existence and then thanking him and honoring him the way you should. So Romans 1:29 says this, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Then he lists a whole bunch of stuff, <clears throat> evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, and then the word heartless. That's our word Ah, storges, or it's almost like you could think of it as opposite of affection. I mean, just for a loose example. So when I look that up, this is the definition to that word. It's lacking in good feelings for others. And I think that goes right in line with what we've been talking about. Like you see someone you're familiar with, you have good feelings. Heartless is you see someone and you just want nothing to do with them. Like there's this distance there. Um, and then the ways it might be translated would be hard-hearted unfeeling or without, without regard for other people. So consider times where have you ever said this, like that person's dead to me. So like they do something and it's like the final straw, you're dead to me. I'm just going to totally ignore you. To me, that seems to go in line with some of the ways that the professor and Mrs. Fidget may behave if you don't do exactly what they want to. The other verse is, and this is the one that you covered Charlie. And so I don't know if you want to just jump in here. Second Timothy three, three, it talks about, this is the one that talks about, see this one I don't have pulled up. This is the one that talks about in the last days, people will be haters of God and all that. So it says, one of the things it says is that they will be heartless. And so <clears throat> we don't see the word storge in the Bible, but we do see it's opposite and it is a vice. It's like a wicked thing. Do you want to, if you want to chime in on that, dive in. You don't have to though. Oh no, I just, you, it's the same, like, what does it mean to be heartless? We, yeah. we, you can yeah. go back. I can't remember what episode it was, but we talked about this from second Timothy. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And not even as a, like, wasn't planned. Like <laughs> that no. we're going to, Oh, we're going to do four loves and it's story. A. I mean, I think we maybe knew it, but not really. I think we saw it in the episode. We noticed it, but, but that was uh, it. Yeah. So yeah. What does it mean to be heartless? It's just that they don't, they don't love the things that they're supposed to, but 
you know, to go in Lewis's mind, what's the difference between an affection, a storge, and all these other things? Well, this is like your kind of a more general sense. And mm-hmm. so in a general sense, in your interaction with people, you don't have yeah. an, an affection, an affinity, a kindness. Mm-hmm. It, it's a cold, yeah. dead, you know, which you would look at that. And if someone was like that, along with all those other vices, you'd be like, eh, something's wrong there. Mm-hmm. Probably not a believer. <laughs> it's definitely not. I think we could say this. It's definitely not what God intended. I think that's helpful for us to think about. And then here's the last place where we see this word. And this one I kind of like in Romans 12, 10, Romans 12 is awesome, by the way. It's just bullet, just machine gun of uh, exhortations to the Christian life. And it's, it's really good to read, but in it, in Romans 12, 10, it says this love one another with brotherly affection. And that word love one another there at the beginning is this word. And again, you're learning a lot of Greek today. Phila storges. Now, phila mm-hmm. comes back to the friendship love. It's literally the word for friendship. And then you have storges, which is the word we're talking about. And so it's like the affection of a friend. It's like combining two of the loves that Lewis is going to talk about. And it the, the translation in BDAG, that's that dictionary we like to use here on the Thinklings, mm. means to love dearly. And the NASB, I love the way the NASB translates this. It doesn't say love one another with brotherly affection. It says be devoted to one another in brotherly affection. So I think the idea here is that in all of these situations, is there a point at which you are going to pull your love away from someone else? Because the Astorges idea here is that you're dead. You're dead to me. I'm, I'm pulling my love away from you. There's a condition and you've not met it. And I think that what the Bible would want us to do as biblical Christians is to love other people like God loves us. And so I would uh, can take the stuff we've talked about today. It's very philosophical in this chapter. It's not, you know, this is not an exegetical study of love. Uh, but the ideas I do think help us to at least think more about love and uh, think about that. And then maybe the way, the thing to walk away with is, uh, are you heartless? And if someone else is less familiar to you, are you going to withhold affection or, or are you willing to love them like God loved you? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.